This is Big Talk. Michael Glab here. You know, in these days of COVID-19 and all these other rotten things that are happening to us, wouldn't it be nice for us to think about something lovely, something sweet, something uplifting? How about music? With us this week, singer, songwriter, Krista Detour. Krista, thanks so much for being on Big Talk. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks so much for such a great introduction. You know, Krista, you were one of the first people of note that I learned about when I moved here back in 2009. You were already back then. That's ancient history, isn't it? Yeah. You were already a known person. Hey, you had already been to Europe by that time, uh, regaling them with your dulcet tones. Yeah, well, I think 2009, I think that was, 2009 was the year that I did the, uh, the Darwin Songhouse in Shrewsbury, England. So that was, a, that was a big touring year. That is so weird because you were invited to participate in the celebration of Darwin's 200th birthday. How did right. that come about? Well, the organizer of the event saw me at a, at a conference, at a, at a big music conference, and then they put, together, um, they put together a group of eight songwriters, and they called on people, I think they were trying to get a real variation, and they called on different songwriters with different strengths. And so they called on me, I was the only American female, but they called on me because I'm a strong character songwriter so i tend to write kind of other people's stories rather than my own and you know they love you over in europe and england and for instance let me give you this quote by a, a fellow named pat tynan he is a, a, a music publicist in london uh, this is a fabulous quote by the way i've worked with everybody paul mccartney kate bush kate bush who i love that's me speaking krista Lyle Lovett. These are big names. And there are those that have it and those that don't. But it's a strange one with Krista. It's a slow burn. She's one of those artists who have to suffer for their art. (laughs) (laughs) That makes you laugh. I love that. Krista, how have you suffered for your art? Well, goodness. I mean... (laughs) In that I'm not currently sitting in my palatial, in my palatial estate on some Google Cloud someplace, I would say, you know, I guess the suffering is in, the suffering is in putting in a lot, a lot of road time and sort of, you know, kind of doing everything that you can to forward a career into, into a, a the upper echelons of music and all of that and you know, just sort of coming face to face with the realities of your life and the state of the industry and, you know, all the massive changes that happened just after I entered it. And so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's never easy. I think entertainment, doing it professionally is never easy, but I, 
I, I tend to be someone that people either really love or, or are, are find a little hard to access or something. So, you know, I mean, I don't think I'm, I don't think I'm inaccessible. I think I'm an open book, but, (laughs) but, you know, I, I think that, I don't know. I think it's, I think it's just one of those things that I suffer. I suffer from my art probably because I wish I didn't, but I, I'm a little bit on the empathetic side and, <laughs> and sometimes the world is just a, are we allowed to cross on your podcast? Michael? Go ahead. I can bleep it out. Sometimes the world is just a show. It can be tricky. It can be tricky. Songwriting, songwriting is tricky stuff. You know, so. I'd, I've heard of people, uh, for instance, guitarists who play so long and play so hard that literally their fingertips bleed. Yeah, That's think- the kind of hardship that we think of. But you're speaking more of an emotional hardship, too. Well, I think so. And also, you know, I, as I was entering the market, I was entering it, you know, in my mid-30s, and I had three little children. So it's a very, very, very difficult balance being a woman with children, entering a touring market, and keeping all of those balls in the air. I think men have an easier time. They can more easily step out of their lives while their wives stay home, raise kids, you know, keep the, keep the farm running. But it was a harder, it it was a harder balance for me. And I really did have to split my time between those two things. And, you know, in the past handful of years, put much more of my time into what my kids were doing because you know, the, you don't get to do that over. You say you started in the business in your 30s, yeah. but you actually have been involved with music since you were a tiny little girl. Yes, indeed. Indeed. But in terms of, in terms of overcoming stage fright to such an extent that I could get on the road, I had really, really avoided all of that. I wanted to be more, uh, more along the lines of like, a Phoebe Snow type or a, or Steely Dan type. And you know, those are, those are people in the seventies and I wasn't, of course I wasn't performing in the seventies. I was a kid, but they never went on the road. So it had incredible stage, right? Steely Dan. I think they were just, they were just too snotty to go on the road. <laughs> I don't think there was stage, fright. They were just such, they're just such cocky elite <laughs> guys that they just couldn't be bothered. But I wanted to just stay in the studio and write songs and, you know, and somehow, somehow be successful in that way. And in the time that I came onto the market, it was just as the internet was really, self-promotion was really kicking. And that was just impossible. I mean, maybe now with video and YouTube and everything that is here, I mean, maybe. But at that time in the Americana market and the folk market, you simply had to tour if you if you wanted any recognition, any radio play, any um, anybody, any agents or managers or publicists to take any kind of interest in you. You had to be on the road, had to be on the road, and I couldn't really face that notion until I, a, cu- a couple of kind of big life experiences happened, and then I crossed over the right. stage track to performance. Krista, the story I get is that you discovered 
a piano at your babysitter's house when you were about five years old? Well, we moved, well, my babysitter's husband, when I was about four years old, brought home one of those little organs, you know, with the, like the, the, maybe the colored dots on the keys and then a book of matching color dots so that right. you could play along without reading music. And I remember a distinct aha moment and... I instantly took to it and then I played it all the time, eventually much to the dismay of my babysitter because I never really stopped playing it. <laughs> but then when we moved, uh, when my parents moved and I was six, we moved into a house that had a piano and I asked them if we could keep it. Wow. And, yeah. And so then I played piano from that point forward. I got lessons. I started when I was about seven and took lessons till I was about 12 wow. when I was too obnoxious to take lessons anymore. <laughs> Were you a pain in the butt kid? Oh, that I was that and more. <laughs> I was that and more. And I and then by the time I was 12, 13, 13, 14, I started having big dreams of being a rock and roll singer. And so mm. yeah, I would then I would I'm just gonna just be real just like full disclosure, I would steal my mother's cigarettes and smoke them out back because I wanted my voice to get a little bit gravelier. Right. Because it was very, <laughs> yeah, I sounded like Tinkerbell at 12 and I wanted to sound like Janis Joplin. So yeah, but, yeah. yeah. kids, kids don't do that. That's a dumb idea. <laughs> well, there's tons of ideas that they have that are dumb. Don't worry about it. They'll figure something out. <laughs> you and at the age of 15, you started writing songs. I did, yeah. I wrote, uh, I wrote the first song, I think, when I was actually 14, a little wow. song called I'm Never What I Seem, because 14-year-olds are so complex, especially 14-year-old girls. Oh, my God. Yeah. So uh, it's a sweet little song, actually. And I... Had started. I started writing little, tiny, cute little books of poetry when I was nine. So I've always been a big, voracious reader. Still am, and love love language, love the written word, love the lyrical content of any piece of of any any song. The lyrical content has got to has got to be um, well crafted, and you know, and inspired. It's got to be. For me, I mean, and I'm talking other people's work, too. There are a lot of really good songs out there with really incredibly insipid, silly lyrics. And I just, you know, I I make fun of them because <laughs> that's right to do because we're terrible people. And but I feel like lyrical content is incredibly important. So, Were you at that time struggling with your body image? Yes, I really, I spent most of my life being, I mean, I don't talk about it much. I spent most of my life being very overweight, actually. And all the way well into my 20s and even my early 30s, I was, I was, I was very, very overweight, you know, kind of over 200 pounds. And I know people can't really, can't really relate to that idea, but I have pictures, folks. I keep thinking I'll, I'll like, I'll auction them off someday. 
But and you're, and you're short too. So 200 pounds on your short frame right? is uh, uh, packing a lot on. That's packing a lot on. I'm only about five foot three. Yeah. So, I, would, I weighed 200 pounds. I'd be a lot thinner <laughs> than I am now. <laughs> yeah, but you're a very big guy. You're very tall. And I, yeah. am, I am not, I was just pretty much, I think probably kind of square at that point. So it was a very interesting, a very interesting thing happened in that I'm an adopted, I was an adopted kid and my adopted mother who's, who lives here in Bloomington, uh, my adopted mother, Judy, was always just solid muscle, not, a, not an ounce of body fat. And she, um, I didn't really understand and neither did she why I was, you know, I was so overweight. I was just this constantly, I was just thinking about this today, Michael. I was, I, every time I peel a hard boiled egg, I was thinking about the myriad horrifying diets that oh. were around oh, in the eighties. and 90s. I mean, I was, I was, I was on the, I think it was like the, and I think it might've been about 15 or something, but like on the coffee, Black coffee, hard-boiled egg, and toast diet. Can you even imagine? So No, I, mean, I don't want to. That's horror to me. It's so horrible. And every time I peel an egg, I think about that. And um, I did so many of those things, and she tried so hard to, you know, all kinds of different exercise plans and all of this stuff, and nothing, nothing ever really worked. So I kept seeing it as this sort of personality flaw, like this psychological flaw. and then I met my biological parents and my father at the time was about 400 pounds. Your biological father. Yeah. About, and about six foot one. They, my biological parents found me and wanted a relationship wow. about six foot one and 400 pounds. So that is, a, that is too much, right? That's a lot. Yeah. And my brother was also overweight. My sister was overweight. My mother was overweight. And I looked up and I went, oh, this is biology. Yeah. Well, I can deal with biology. I can't deal with some vague sense of personal failure that is, you know, inexplicable and, and therefore impossible to overcome. And once I realized it was biology, I did some research and, and my sister is a big research head and we both kind of landed at like Atkins, Atkins Keto, that kind of thing, uh -huh. high protein, low carb diet. And that was all there was. And that was the end of it. I lost well, a whole bunch of weight. You feel better about yourself now. Did you hate yourself back then? I wouldn't say, I wouldn't say necessarily hated myself, but I definitely hated how I looked. Yeah. And it didn't, I, I wasn't one of those people who was real body positive right? because I, you know, I mean, I was, I'm, I was so small and so heavy that I felt like it really limited my, my potential experiences. Yeah. And I think, you know, you're not going to go like all, all of the things that I have done since and all the things that are completely part of my life. I'm not going to go on any 10 mile hike. You know, I'm not going to go on any hike at all. I wouldn't have had, I had no relationship with any kind of like cardiovascular health or the things that you, as you get older, have to start paying attention to. You know, you have no choice unless you want to end up heavily medicated and 
hospitalized and die young and deal with blood pressure and all that stuff you have to you have to pay a little bit more attention and i just i got into a, i got into a completely different mindset about food and everything else and everything just changed it changed and it didn't go back in the midst of all this in the one of the most trying times of anybody's life adolescence at yeah. 15 a talent manager apparently heard you sing at a talent show right yeah and yeah. this person this person said i'm gonna make you famous yeah yes and he tried very hard he tried very hard but i was 15 going on 16 and you know the people their a and r people came out to look at me and and talk about some development and things like that but i was at that point not at all interested in his version of pop stardom you know i was i was just rough and tumble i was hanging out in la and hollywood at that point and whiskey and perkins palace and I was really into what was happening out there on the on the on the punk scene and and all this all this kind of wild new music that was coming and I wasn't interested in in the in the pop princessness princessness stuff that was happening. Yeah. So, you know, I probably shot myself completely in the in the foot, but I I really wanted nothing to do with it. And so I I just kind of I've kind of put the brakes on it and I sang a, a band. I sang with a rock band, you know, I just, I something else. Yeah. I'm going to say this as a compliment, but you okay. sound to me like a hard head. A little bit. You could ask my husband. I think maybe <laughs> like, I don't know, but maybe I might be. <laughs> yeah. But once, I'm, once I'm convinced of something, and, you know, especially something like music. I mean, it was impossible for me to explain to him at the time and to explain to people, but music was, music was how I got through. You know, I got through some of the hard things in childhood. And it was something that was so personal and it was so much my expression. And I wanted to be a songwriter. And at that point in time, that paradigm didn't so much exist. You walked in as as a potential pop something, and then, well, you know, hard and fast pop hit writers wrote for you. And I wanted to, I had my own to say, and so, I, 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 I really felt like my version of life was very different. And you know, I I don't honestly regret that because I don't really regret it. I would have, there are about a million experiences I wouldn't have had. Now, granted, there are a million experiences I would have had, but you know, that's all, that's all the roll of the dice. And the truth yes. is I'm kind of an introvert and I don't think I would make a very good pop star. Like I've got none of that Madonna stuff. Like I want to be in the spotlight all the time. It's just not true. I don't want to be in the spotlight all the time. You're no Kanye I, West. No. And I would hate to have that level of fame. I mean, to, and, and kudos to everybody who's got it, but I generally and genuinely would hate it because I, I was on a train and, and going from, from one city to another in Holland and 
I'm walking around Amsterdam by myself and that level, that level of um, anonymity where I, I didn't even speak the language. I could, I could pick up little bits and pieces of it, but it was, it was sublime. And I don't, I think super famous people never get that, you know, unless they're disguised or, yeah. Well, you were, you were an oddball kid. I would say, hey, you were a Southern California girl. Your yeah. brother, Rob, for instance, was a surfer boy. He was yep. out all the time. But yep. you were in the house sitting at the piano for hours at a time. That's yep. odd for Southern California, or is it not? You tell me. Okay, it's odd. But <laughs> if you're, it's odd. It's for sure odd. But I was got desperately in love with the piano, so... The piano was where I went for everything. It was all of my emotional outlet and all the way that all the ways that I could articulate things that I couldn't otherwise. And I was also kind of a ginger. Uh, so Southern California for a pasty freckled girl is really not as enticing as you might imagine. Because I could go to the beach with my suntan Malibu Barbie friends, but you know I sort of had kind of big thick glasses and kind of curly curly reddish hair and freckles and I was kind of pasty and it was kind of overweight and so I, I mean I could do it but I would only come home from the beach either burned to a crisp or slightly less pasty and <laughs> I'd have to get into some sort of bathing suit and that was always challenging so I think the piano was I think the piano sort of substituted for that kind of all that kind of stuff well that that dedication to the piano the dedication to writing music has led to to this point in time nine releases albums and eps your first one 2004 a dream in a cornfield uh right. there is more to the story than just an album coming out well, that was the means by which I met David Weber. Who is your husband? Who is my husband. I walked into Airtime Recording Studios and with another band that I was just sort of sitting in. I, they, they, they needed some songs and I had some songs. And so I walked into this recording studio in the middle of nowhere and, um, and there was David and he heard my songs and when the guys were like either passed out or on a break, he said, how do you know these guys and do you have more songs? And so that was the beginning of our, that was the beginning of our creative relationship, which was a couple of years long. And then we ended up getting together. You, and, uh, you started writing songs about unrequited love. I yes, I did. <laughs> <laughs> Now, why were you doing that, young lady? <laughs> oh, I might have had a crush on him, but I didn't. I didn't. It was nothing that I was gonna that I was gonna make any kind of move on. You weren't so. gonna make a move. Why not? Well, I don't know. You know, there, there's, there are just so many complications, and we had a, a working musical relationship, and you know, ex-spouses and all of that stuff. It was just, 
I just, and also mostly, you know, I was, I was really insecure. That's the truth. You know, I still sort of, um, I just still sort of saw myself as, I don't know, that kind of, the kind of body image stuff that you can really kind of get stuck with when you deal with your formative years of being that kind of, um, the, that kind of misfit sense, you know what I mean? It still lives of, up in the attic is what you're saying, it right? It does a little bit, yeah. So it was just one of those things. I thought, I thought, you know, this, I don't know, I thought, He's so amazing, you know. Who made the move? Well, at one point, he looked at me and he said, wow, you've got your writing these really, really beautiful love songs. You know, when are you going to write a song for me? <laughs> I, that was hilarious. That should have been my first clue as to how many communication misfires we would have over the years. But, yeah, and then I just, and then I just had to look at him and say, these, I mean, you can't imagine that these, I mean, these are, I've said, they are about you. And then he, <laughs> it, he was absolutely like gobsmacked. I mean, except for that he wasn't, he had to know. I don't know. Uh oh. Can't mend that well, Michael. Maybe you could fill me in. <laughs> but, but here you are. You made it now. <laughs> you're, you're, you're both together. And hey, by the way, I'm going to jump into this. Actually, no, I'm not. This week, I'll jump into it next week for part two of our conversation with singer, songwriter, muse, Krista Detour. Now, you come back Thursday, July 23rd, 2020, 5.30 p.m. As always, Big Talk, every Thursday at 5.30 Come on back and hear more about what's going on in Krista Detour's life. In fact, she and David Weber, her husband, have a big project going on, and they're going to be helping out some theater students from the East Coast. And that's all coming up next week. Someone came in close, looked into the keyhole, this week has been singer, songwriter, arts muse, 
Sometimes she needs a muse herself. <laughs> Krista Detour. Krista, thank you so much for being on Big Talk. Thanks for having me. It's been great. Start in the quiet and the rough stand ruins.